Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley and Matt Bianco. Sarah Jane, Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Good evening. Matt, how are you? I'm swell. We are here to discuss the final chapters of The Rector of Justin by Louis Akinkwas. Um, we are going to discuss um, the ending as well as some things that have come up on the Facebook page, which I'd like to bring up. Before we do that, though, I want to remind everybody that next week we are going to be answering your questions. So be sure to um, you know, toss a question into the hat, so to speak. You can do that on the Facebook page where we will have a thread for uh, you know that activity. And you can also email them to us. Uh, and the email address is closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you so desire. And you can do that at closereadspods. And I'm going to mute my phone so that we don't have to listen to that noise. Let's start here. Um, well, should we start with what I said? We should start with Matt. Sarah Joe, Matt and I were talking a little bit off the air. Someone asked a question. No, let's do this. We're going to start here. This is great radio. Okay, so... Or podcasting or whatever. Should we start with a question? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm on st- edge of my, should- my <laughs> exercise ball. <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs> so, Sarah Jane, I should say, when, um, when I posted the thing about how you're going on maternity leave and you're looking for someone to fill in for you at, at Eaton, yes. people, people were commenting on the Facebook group, like, how did that not show up? That little fact that you're going on maternity leave not show up on the get to know you thing. And I said, I wasn't sure if that's something that I should, you know, drop, drop into the, <laughs> just drop in there. And you didn't. So, you know, I'm not going to add it when you didn't, but oh, yeah. That's very discreet of you. I suppose if people could see me, it would, <laughs> there would be no doubt. <laughs> well, now that you just, you know, relayed the information that you're recording while sitting on an exercise ball, that, that also might, that probably gives it away. So yeah, you, when is your daughter due again? On the 5th of January, which is actually my birthday. Oh, um, wow. What, but I don't what? know if babies arrive on time. If she's like me, she'll be late. <laughs> is that just a general thing about you or just specifically that you were born late? I was born late and I've been late ever since. <laughs> ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting because my son was born the day before my birthday. So that's kind of fun. I, uh, think, I think firstborns tend to be not early. They tend to mm-hmm. be on time or late, right? Did you say half an hour late? On time or late. Oh, (laughs) very specific. (laughs) 30 minutes. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that was weird. But um yeah, so I can be a doula if I want. <laughs> Can't stop America, me. This is 2019. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, some states can stop you. Um, so, so yeah. So, congratulations uh, on behalf of you know, I guess the whole uh, the whole team here. We are you know excited for you and your husband Toby. And let us Thank know you so much. Let us know where you uh, registered so we can get you a gift. But really, it's just, we're just going to send you books. Probably this is one of our go to. That's all I'll need. <laughs> that you know, first year of of having a baby is just going to be me sitting around reading books, presumably, while the baby sleeps quietly. While yeah. I fill in for you at Eton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to just go with that's what the first year is going to be like for you. Yeah. So congratulations, <laughs> and people were. Um, were excited for you and you know saying nice things on the Facebook page. And if That's you were so on Facebook and joining the page, then then you would you would know that. But you are the sane one among us who has not yet uh, joined Facebook. That was far as I know. No, I'm not on Facebook. I just have an aversion to social media. But yeah, I we're, we're the strange ones. That's not to criticize anyone who is on it. And I yeah, it's great that there's a close reads network on there. But um I don't know. But you'll never join it. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about 
director of Justin, because the book ends very interestingly. And I wanted to ask you both something about the form of this book. You know, at the end of the book, our writer, our, our narrator, I guess, our chief point of view, ends it by saying, enough of this nonsense, I'm going to go write my book now. But all we are given in the, in the actual novel that Alkenklaus gives us is the sort of uh, almost record of his invention, in a sense. You know, it's almost like a record of how he came up with the ideas of what he's then going to write about. And I was wondering if, uh, Sarah, I'll ask you this first. Why do you think Alkenklaus takes that approach as opposed to giving us the novel that he ultimately wrote you know it's it's even less of you know a sort of final set of remembrances than say charles writers are in in brideshead revisited why do you think alkenklaus chooses to give to to approach it in this way that's a really good question i think he's playing on some of the tropes of um of the novel where often you get a narrator who introduces himself at the beginning and takes leave at the end there there's also similarity here to some ends of shakespeare plays where at the end of, say, Othello and at the end of Hamlet, the main character says, tell my story. So there's a sense at the end of the novel that the story starts again. And then we also get Brian's overt comment that says, I'm interested only in inspiring my reader. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not interested in writing a biography. So perhaps we get the sense that Brian decided to give us the various manuscripts and conversations that he'd heard in the form that we've given them. Because there's a kind of trepidation, isn't there, from Brian at the end, that he's faced with these um, Arctic pages. He's not quite sure how he's going to fill them. And, and then what we get is it's an unusual autobiography and it's an unusual form for a novel. So hmm. I wonder if that's what what Alkin Kloss was thinking. I'm not sure. What What are your theories about this? I, th- I think Brian seems exactly like the type of person who would conclude his diary saying, his journal saying, okay, I'm done with all this stuff. Now I'm going to go write a novel. I'm going to go write an actual biography. And then never do it. <laughs> six months later, it's like, I'm just going to publish the notes I have. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like exactly what he would, do right like he couldn't actually take himself like like i mean for one for one he prescott said you have to include this bit and then in the conclude in that concluding entry to the journal he says but prescott's wrong i'm yeah. not going to include that bit i mean basically he says i'm not going to include that bit um even though even I, at least that's how i read it that i'm not going to include that bit even though he asked me to hmm. But then, like, he's so, I don't know, he's such an honest person, right? Like, I think that there's this moment where he thinks, Brian Brian is, where there's this moment where he thinks he's going to be bold and not do that, you know, go against the promise he made, but then Mm. in the end, won't actually be able to do that. And he ends up giving us all of the information. And we're talking particularly about leaving out the Jules story, right? The Jules story, yeah. I, I read that he eventually agrees with that. Bound as I am to include the essence of Jules Griscom's story, um, doesn't he say at some point that he agrees with Prescott that that is necessary? I agree with him that his failure with Jules was an important part of his record as a headmaster. In the last section, the last chapter? It's in the very last chapter. 
it's just on the, the very first page of the last chapter. I, I agree with you, Matt. It would be consistent with his character, wouldn't it, to write like this? Because it's almost as if Brian doesn't feel that he has the authority himself to be the narrator of Prescott's life. There's also yeah. a kind of slightly pathetic moment where he says, I want the little figures like myself who might turn up on preliminary drafts washed out of the final picture. Yeah. 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 Brian. <laughs> yeah. But that's but, not what we get. He's like the anchor man throughout this Prescott show, isn't he? Though they do not, they do not wash out in the final picture. I mean, no. of what we actually get at all, right? But you're but yeah. I I, I don't, like that's that's an interesting section there too, because the reason he wants that. Like I, that appeals to me. Um, you know, when he says, I'm not interested in writing a biography, I'm interested only in inspiring my reader, right? As you, as you mm. quoted earlier, this I is have, 24, right? 24. Yeah. This is page two, three, three first page of 24. He says, I am much at odds with my century in believing that to demonstrate the best by itself is more inspiring than the best with the worst. So the mm. century believes that it's better to inspire by combining the best with the worst, he believes that it's better to inspire with just the best. And then, and then at the, at the very bottom, he says, we live in an age where the homely or psychological detail is considered all important. We like heroes in shirt sleeves, or in other words, we don't like heroes. And the next part that was important though, but things were not always that way. And today is not forever. Right. And I, but see, I think I don't, I like, there's something appealing to me about that because there is something in which we like antiheroes. We like, we like our heroes to be messy, to be dirty. We want, we want all the psychological tidbits and secrets and we want to be able to see the, how human people are and, and what humanity is really like and the nature of, of man and, and things like that. Mm. And we think that that's, we think in our generation, I think he's the point he's getting at is that we think that that's a superiority, a superior way of viewing stories mm. and characters. And what he's saying is uh, maybe that's just a generational thing. Maybe that's just a cultural thing and it won't be that way forever. And you're actually wrong. And he's going to edit out the the failures and the bits that are not, um, how does he say it, the worst, that he wants yeah. to demonstrate the best by itself. Yeah. Yeah. But then, then he doesn't. <laughs> but then he doesn't, exactly, because all of Cordelia's bits about Prescott add these kind of Freudian psychoanalytical shades and psychological details. Right. Psychological <laughs> details, right. exactly. And then the other thing that's a bit contradictory is that Brian is the one who says, well, we should have a memorial to Jules Griscom at the school. Why why should it only be the heroes who get commemorated? I was, oh, I was right. thinking a lot about how Brian, he's kind of in this constant state of editing or like revision. Not only is he trying to decide how to curate or revise or edit or whatever this particular story, but even in the scenes that were given in his journals, his actions are often about sort of revising the way people think about Prescott or the school. You know, he's the one that convinces Griscom to do stuff in honor of Jules and to give her this big amount of money. And, and he's the one that goes to Griscom and warns him essentially of what Prescott's speech is going to be, which ultimately leads to Prescott giving a, to, giving a different speech and mm. learning things that he didn't want him to, to know. And so as much as he's trying to preserve the reputation and the honor of Prescott, 
and he's trying to protect Prescott from making certain bad decisions as he's older and all that. It's like he is in this constant state of like his preservation of something is also like a revision of something. Like he's changing the way this in the moment, not just at the end, he's changing the way the story is going to play out. That's right. Because he says, I'm less concerned now with the man than with the legend. So there's a certain amount of artistry that goes with it. And it's like he knew that he felt that all along and that was driving him. And now he's able to name that feeling because the preservation of the legend is what led him, I feel like, to try to build bridges between Griscom and Prescott and to, you know, make, make Jules a monument of something positive and not just something negative. And so he's anyway, go ahead. Now you were going to say something. Well, it's just on that point. He's whitewashing the bad. And perhaps right with like with, with the monument to jewels, it's not that he's, I mean, I mean, in the ver- the version that we get, of course, we see the real jewels, but for the visitor to the campus, when I walk on the campus, I don't see good Prescott, bad jewels. Mm-hmm. And then I don't get to see the greater Prescott because he's standing beside the, the bad jewels, right? He's turning jewels into a great person also. Because the statue is not going to tell any story other than this was a great student or not statue, but the, the Jules Griscom library. The library. The, library. the fact that the library is named that rather, thank you, is, is not going to communicate what he what he did while he was there. It's going to communicate this is that must have been a great person, and now that great person is part of the greatness of Frank Prescott's legacy. Mm-hmm. Not that wayward student is a part of Frank Prescott's legacy, but the student who was so great, he had a building named after him as part of Frank Prescott's legacy, right? So even he's, he's kind of whitewashing the memory of Jules, I think, in that, in mm. that action without, in a way that actually go, goes on to elevate Prescott further. Mm. It does. Um, and the other comment that Brian makes is that the stories of all great men have been in some part works of fiction. And it's almost like because he's an English teacher and a literature enthusiast, he can't resist writing fiction. I think towards the end of the novel, in this part, he's reading Austin and Browning, isn't he? Hmm. And of course, yeah. Austin's, huh. Austin's narrative perspective is revolutionary, really, in the English novel, in that she introduces free and direct style, which gives the narrator the power and the freedom to roam around looking at the world through the eyes of the character. And um, I think I think Brian, consistent with his character, can't help himself <laughs> making the biography into a work of fiction. What did you, did you think, though, about the um, the kind of regret he has at the end when he's talking to Griscom on the steps after the big jubilee dinner? Yeah, yeah, and realizes that his intervention has actually been more of an interference and has, in a way, compromised compromise the truth and forced Prescott to be charming rather than authentic. Yeah. I wrote in the margin on page 328, did Brian do the wrong thing as a something to ask? He says, I care more for him than for the school. You don't, you're right, of course. And so he's, he's sort of, he's judging that Griscom, he, he asserts that Griscom is right to care more for the school and that he is wrong to care more for the man. So mm. then I got to thinking, is he right in making that assessment? 
And then get, and then there's also the layer of given that he cares more for the man than the school. Did he work against his own affections and do the wrong thing to force Prescott to be a certain way? So you can look at it from both perspectives. Is he, does he wrong his own, does he wrong Prescott by what he does? But then also does he do the right thing for the school at the same time? But it, it's tricky though, right? Cause the very next page Griscom seems to, mm-hmm. at least the way, the way Brian gives it to us, Griscom seems to second guess, was he too hard on Prescott? When he says, um, you know, Brian says he's old now, sir, suddenly very old. That's the difference. And he thinks his life has been a failure. And then Griscom responds, but that's absurd. One doesn't decide one's life has been a failure because one happens to disapprove of the point of view of a handful of trustees. And Brian says, let's hope not, sir. And then Griscom says, well, does one? I'm sure you wouldn't. And he stood there biting his lip, frustrated by his inability to convince me or to convince himself. I don't, and when I, the way I read that interchange was, was Griscom's even wondering, like, did I have to push it that far? Did I have to, did I have to convince him that, did I have to convince him that he was a failure? Did I have to, did I have to love the, the school more than the man? as much more than the man as I did. Well, I find his final lines in the book, keep me posted. You know how much I care. Yeah. To be really interesting because the fact that he has to say that. Yeah. Brian would keep him posted. Right. He's that's for himself. You know, do you know how much I care? He's writing a book about Prescott as well, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So what do you think, Sergeant? I think going back to what you were saying about loving the school more or the man more, if we look at what Brian says to Prescott at the end to try and comfort Prescott when Prescott's talking about being a failure, he says, love the individuals more than the school. That's what he says to him. It doesn't matter that you didn't entirely change American education. Think of the individual lives that you touched and transformed. So I find it hard to be convinced that Brian agrees with Griscom. I don't know. I was really surprised, really, at the end when Brian suddenly becomes very excited and energized by this idea that he's going to be able to raise a significant sum of money for the school. Well, he's surprised too, though. Yeah, but he pursues it. And I think it's the one time in the novel where... Alkinkloss actually surprised me because I thought this did introduce an interesting moral complexity about Brian, where he's told by Griscom, you must learn as a minister, Brian, to bear the consequences of conduct that you believe to be right. And and I think it links to what you were saying, David, about uh, Brian always revising what people think. He's also always revising what he thinks of himself. Did I do the right thing? Was that the right thing to do? And he's always having to be reassured, particularly by Prescott, do you remember to have that conversation about martyrdom? Is that in the very final chapter? Um, I think it's in the yeah, penultimate page, chapter. Page 333. Yeah. The intrinsic goodness part. Yeah, he has a silly fit of conscience about his motivations for even visiting Prescott at the end. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. So Well, because he, he comes, he's all, he's, he finds out that Prescott's going to die. And yeah. he comes and he's so upset he can't control himself. And Prescott says, go away and come back when you got yourself under control. <laughs> go for a walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And he says, but what if I've only come because I want to get your last words? Does that make me a terrible person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's always revising his opinions of himself as well. Well, okay. So this is really important here because then Prescott's response, I think is, is one of the most, it's like, you know, straight out of the church fathers or something. Yeah. pastoral. Uh, he says, coming to see me is a good deed, Brian. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say that. That's a great, hold on to that thought. Don't let me forget that word. Or you just say it. But he, <laughs> he says, coming to see me is a good deed, Brian. It gives me pleasure. Therefore it is good. You worry too much about motives. Suppose your motive is selfish. Very well. But now suppose yourself an inquisitor of the, in the, of the Middle Ages who would burn my living body to save my soul. The motive might be good, but what about poor me at the stake? Do you imagine the good Lord will reward the inquisitor more than you? Of course not. Some of the intrinsic goodness of a good deed must seep into the motive and some of the bad of, the ba- of a bad deed. Keep doing good deeds long enough and you'll probably turn out a good man in spite of yourself. So here we have this very pastoral figure giving a pastoral message, which sounds mm. like something out of like Chrysostom or something to a pastor, yeah. you know, to a minister yeah. who then later on, or uh, I don't know if it's actually it might be earlier, but then he basically says the same thing or similar thing to the dying Prescott mm. who's feeling like he's a failure. And he's saying, but think about every individual person that because you just studied, you moved mm. on steadily forward, you persevered in pursuit of an ideal maybe the school itself doesn't become what you thought it was going to be. And maybe the school itself doesn't live up to the ideal, but the, every individual person or the, at least the few individual people who you, whose lives you changed, who you meant something to means that means so much more than the school itself being some sort of, you know, having some sort of reputation or being some sort of model of what you thought. Maybe the school got away from you, but those individual relationships still mean something. So it's really interesting the way you have like these, these sort of reversals of roles going back and forth and the way people are keep, it keeps changing the way someone means something to somebody else. Mm. Like mm-hmm. it seems like through the whole book, Prescott means something to everyone else, but then the things start getting flipped. And then like two pages later, they get flipped again. And what one person is the mentor who's encouraging the other person. And then the mentee is encouraging the mentor. And, and then at the end you have the really moving scene where he's, you know, it kind of concludes by him sending him away Brian finally gets sent away in the same way that Prescott has always been sending people away. You can't stay here anymore. You have to go out on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the like, irony there is that, you know, Prescott can't leave. <laughs> he can never leave Justin Martyr. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I was really struck by that because I, I just thought, imagine if our former headmaster who'd left Eton, he's left Eton about four or five years ago. If he took a house right on the edge of the school grounds and every day came into the school and came to chapel every Sunday, it would be so strange Hmm, and really awkward. (laughs) But then Frank says, that's interesting because you said he can't leave Justin Martyr. And I think Sarah Jane, you meant it as he's unwilling to leave, right? He's unwilling and unable. Like he can't make himself do it. Well, by the end, he's he, too old. He can't. But I wonder if he can't, like he's not allowed. Because he says... Oh, because they keep hauling him back in. Yeah. Well, like at the one point he says, I made a very foolish decision on page 334. Oh, I said 334 like you do. <laughs> I know. I would always say 334. And now I'm saying 334 like Sarah Jane. Well, so you're rubbing <laughs> off on me, Sarah Jane. Civilization <laughs> um, <laughs> coming to America. <laughs> 
I love how I don't have to do anything to prove that my position is more civilized. It's just assume. Oh, no, we're Americans. You have, we absolutely <laughs> assume that. You have an accent, so it's automatically better. Than <laughs> we're a rogue bunch of rebels living in a wilderness, like, you know, something out of Star Wars or something. I have I have a raccoon skin hat on my head right now. Just <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually wearing buckskin, so... <laughs> Okay, on three, three, four, it says, "I made a very, oh, I made a foolish resolution last spring." I won't say it like that because I can't. <laughs> I made a foolish resolution last spring. I wanted to teach myself a lesson for having interfered with Duncan Moore's administration, and I made a vow that I would never set foot on the campus again. But that, of course, was making poor Moore pay for my mistake. That was sulking in my tent. When I understood this, I decided to make certain regular appearances at the school. So, mm. like there, he tried to withdraw, not geographically, but at least from, you know, the, the everyday presence on the campus and then decided that he was, he was actually punishing the current headmaster by not being there. What does that mean? Like, what if the former headmaster of Eton said, well, I was going to leave, but then I figured, I realized it would be punishing you new headmaster. Yeah. I was going to ask, is this, is this true or is this how he thinks he should be? Is this how he justifies it to himself? I don't know. Cause I read it as it's true. Like, but then yeah. I, but I wondered as soon as I read it and assumed it that way, I wondered, would would more agree? Like, does does more actually think he's losing something by having Frank not around? Well, okay, so, but maybe it goes. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's neither like a justification nor for Moore in the sake that Moore can't handle things without him being there, or it helps Moore out. Maybe he's think, talking about something more like more about. No, no pun intended more about um the uh the like intrinsic sort of nature of this i got very distracted by that as i was speaking but uh, like the uh like the nature of the school itself and that he knows that he is a tether to sort of what the school is meant to be sort of like at its core and that by sticking around as much as he can he allows that that sort of nature to 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 remain to not be pushed out and so he and then he believes that that will that ultimately does help more that helps the school that's like and that without him being there it will become more difficult because people like all the trustees will mm. gradually push that sort of intrinsic nature out of oh, the school. interesting. And so, so he's like a every bit that he spends there is like a little bit of it's like watering or something yeah. like that. You know, he's mm. he's doing some guard, you know, by being he goes out once a week to do some pruning or something. Right. I am gonna run out of ways of saying this metaphor, but yeah. you know. have you got I, a bird metaphor you could use? Uh, <laughs> he, 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 I imagine he does. I can imagine him in the shadow of his wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was better than what I was going to say. I was just going to say I can imagine him sitting in, you know, looking out his window with some binoculars and doing a little bird watching of the grounds when, you know, pretending as bird watch when really he's just watching, you know, kids do bad things or something. Uh, where's More where's <laughs> where's um where is this could be completely off track and you guys could stop me, but where is Pope Benedict the 16th? But currently right yeah. now, uh, like, is he, or like during this, some, yeah, no, I mean, right now, is he like somewhere on the grounds of the Vatican or did he go off somewhere to retire? Mm, what would that be like for Pope Francis? Right. If they didn't Benedict is retired and hanging around. Like, so he, yeah, well, of course, and that's such a rare situation. Because it never happens. Yeah. Right. But it would be similar to this, right? Like, like, oh, there's my predecessor. 
I'm I'm one of the first popes ever to have a predecessor roaming the roaming the Vatican grounds. He, he's it does known as pope. a kind of awkwardness, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Have the emeritus headmaster still? He's not quite on the campus, but he he is a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. It changes your the way you approach. It would change the way you, it would affect the way you approach everything, the way you speak. Like, like I, like last Sunday I was, I co-teach a Sunday school class at my church and the, I'm the assistant and the guy who normally teaches it had texted me and said he wasn't going to be in town. So I was leading. And then he texted me on Saturday and said, change plans. I am going to be there, but you go ahead and lead. And so then I'm up there leading the class and he's sitting in the back, like he's monitoring me or something and it was really weird right like like the way i approached the class was probably different than it would have been if he hadn't been there just it's not, almost, not in a bad way but it's just that's just it just necessarily happens right yeah it's almost like the scene in this section of the novel where brian is teaching one of prescott's favorite poets browning and prescott's sitting at the back of the class mm-hmm. and then Later on in the chapter, the new headmaster Moore comes and sort of slightly awkwardly puts his arm around Brian and says, now, Brian, if you're having problems with your teaching, you know, you can always come and talk to me. You don't have to go and get Prescott onto the campus every time. Um, there seems to be a little bit of rivalry there. Yeah. Benedict, Pope Benedict lives in Mater Ecclesiae Monastery, just so you know, in Vatican City. So he lives in Vatican City, probably you know, in a very nice <laughs> yeah. monastery, very close to wherever. Pope, huh. I wonder if they, they, if they there's got to be, someone's got to have written, uh, written they about this. Text each they? Other. Yeah. <laughs> they're just sending messenger doves. They're on, they're on social media, Sarah Jane. <laughs> yeah. Pope Francis is on. Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to ask you something because that I think is related to this. Um, Somebody posted on the Facebook page. Are we allowed to, you know, take people's questions even though you don't believe in social media? Are you going to be offended if we... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I need to be a bit more uh, on point here to defend my position. I'll, I'll try and... <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to be on social media anymore. I'm way over it. It's just, you know, too much a part of my, uh, my life. Um, okay, so somebody mentioned that... Wait, isn't this supposed to be next week's episode? Well, the... This isn't from the actual. Are you thread. inviting Q and A's into the I'm just uh, episode in, early? David? Yeah, yes, I am. I know. Okay, I'm breaking. I'm breaking. Um, I just want to hear you breaking it. tradition a little bit here. Okay, but somebody said that it, it wasn't like a criticism of the book. I don't think, but it was saying something like, "I don't, I don't feel the sort of mystery of Prescott. Like, what is it about him that everyone is so enamored with? I don't. This person was saying, I don't come away from my readings being as enamored or." finding him as incredible as other people do. So like they don't find him likable or they don't find him. I didn't him take him. I didn't like, uh, I don't know that the, the person wasn't being that specific. I think there was like, what is the mystique of him? I think is more what they were saying. Not that she didn't see that he was a virtuous person or have some wisdom to dole out or whatever, but why did you know, in some ways I think the, I think the point was, yeah, maybe he's this sort of fatherly mentor type person. But where, why is there a mystique about him? And I was wondering if by the end of the book, either of you feel that way or can answer that question. Sarah Jane, what do you think? Do you, do you question the mystique of Frank Prescott or do you, can you answer the question, I guess? Um, 
I think a lot of the references to theatricality and vaudeville and the idea of Prescott being in the spotlight on the stage and there being a sort of front of house Prescott and a behind the scenes Prescott does, yeah, it does create a kind of intrigue and a mystique about him that he has all these tensions, that he's theatrical, a bit too violent, but excessively or uh, successfully charming when he wants to be. Um, Mm. I do think he's a great headmaster and that he does retain a kind of mystique. It it does all start to become more clear in the last few chapters. Isn't, isn't part of the mystique the fact that the different characters think of him and represent him so differently mm. also? Like his daughter, you know, one daughter represents him one way, the other two daughters represent him another way. Although we only get that in kind of, I mean, really almost in passing. Brian thinks of him one way. Griscom thinks of him one way. Turnbull thinks of him one way. Jules thinks of him one way. And there's, there's, there are competing interpretations of who he is, which I think is part of the mystique, right? Like, I, like I, in one way, we're probably supposed to ask which view of Prescott is the real Prescott or which view is the truest view? Who's telling us the truth and who's giving us uh, well, to take Brian's words at the end, right? Who's giving us the novel? So which is the biography the and legend, which is yeah. the legend, right? But then on the other hand, I, I agree with the question because, and I think just going back to kind of what I was what I was saying, uh, I don't remember if it was a week ago or two weeks ago, but the idea that I think, I think in a sense, we do know Frank Prescott. And so when we encountered these different versions, some of them feel right and some of them feel wrong and we can kind of accept and dismiss them as we go. I think, again, I think with particular details, we might quarrel or quibble with one another, but, but the general picture that, that, that comes out of that, I think is going to be pretty similar for all of us. So I think we do kind of know, we can see through the, um, the interpretive nature of the different stories and get at the heart of the real Prescott. And so then there's not a mystique. There's not a mystery in that sense, but then because it's being presented so differently, there still is that as far as the presentation goes, there is that mystery that we have to consider the mystique that we have to consider, even though, even though deep down inside we might see through it or we might think we might see ourselves as being able to see through it. Yeah, I agree. And I think what I mean by mystique is, the the word that Alkinclos has used a few times in the novel is quixotic, that yeah. it's more to do with Prescott being unpredictable. You're never quite sure when he's going to ch- turn on the charm or when he's going to um, expel you. <laughs> and that's what makes right. him an intriguing character. That's, so, for example, when all the, um, there's that sort of staged meeting with the trustees that, that Dave Griscom has lined up to Maybe. prevent Prescott from giving this showdown speech at the Jubilee dinner. Prescott at one point is very, very pugnacious and uh, hostile. And then moments later, he's really conciliatory and just says, Oh, Dave, poor you. And kind of walks off. Pats him on the shoulder. Yeah. 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 So there's this, there's a really interesting mercurial quality to to Prescott. How much do you think of that as his real nature and how much of that is performance? Well, that's what we can never know. I think because there are hundreds of references to theater throughout the novel. And even Brian concedes that a lot of the time Frank Prescott is acting 
Mm-hmm. I made a note. Let's see if I can find it real quick. I made a note. You're trying to beat Sarah Jane to a Shakespeare reference? <laughs> no. I've I'll got go- lots from this section. <laughs> I only have nine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's a competition. 9.3. I'm going to go back through it again. I think I have to read more Shakespeare to keep up with you, though. No, there's a point in the reading from this week. Actually, there's been a point in the reading every single week. I'm positive. I'm going to try to find this particular one, though, but where he makes reference to the architecture of the school again. Mm-hmm. And in in this instance, he says, he says something about the architecture. Here it is, page 285. 285. 285. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> he says, how the richness of his loving nature fills in the crannies of the somber buildings and acts as a great red Romanesque arch over the bleak fall sky. One cannot understand the architecture of Justin without its necessary compliment in Dr. Prescott's personality. Um, but the thing is like every time they go back and make a reference to the architecture of the school, they refer to the red Romanesque arch. Mm. And depending on who the character is that's describing it, it's either haunting, overwhelming, calming, beautiful, uh, tyrannical. Like the ar- the architecture itself is ever changing and hmm. ever affecting them in different ways. And then, and that depends on the person. It depends on like, sometimes it's Brian who sees it as in the very beginning of the book, he sees it as kind of overwhelming or scary. Then later he finds it comforting. And then later he finds it um, distant and cold. Um, The time that he goes to live with Griscom for the summer, Mm. like in that instance, in that, in that section, he leaves seeing the architecture as being this kind of cold haunting or, or distant thing that, that does is not welcoming to him. Mm. Um, so, so sometimes it's the same person interpreting it in different ways. Sometimes it's based on his feelings in Brian's case, or his emotional state, I guess. And then in other instances, it's the different characters like Cordelia interprets it one way or, or Dave Criscom interprets it another way. And Jules uh, actually in this bit as well. And Jules. Yeah. Mm. Good. And then here um, it's Brian again. And it's, it's like even the architecture is quixotic in the way that Frank is right. Even, even we're not even sure how the architecture is going to affect us one day to the next. That's right. At the beginning, it's even when, when Brian starts to experience the friendship and the softness and the support of Prescott, that's when the red bricks start to soften and it stops looking Mm -hmm. so austere. So that's there right the way through the novel. Um, And really, you noticed the Romanesque arch. I was also noticing the tower with the bell in it as being closely associated to Prescott. And there's this recurring bell tolling now in these last few chapters, as if, you know, that John Donne poem, No Man is an Island, the bell tolls for thee. And there's a sense that Prescott's time is coming to an end um, and that the bell is tolling and... Mm. There's, there's a, it's the very end of Jules Griscom's narrative. He ends with this image of tears that would fall and splash until the very tower of the school with its clanging bell would crack and be submerged. And I wondered if that was a reference to another bit of literature 
And I looked and looked and I couldn't really find anything. But it sounds to me like that is drawing on some sort of archetypal image. Is it something in American culture that I'm missing? The cracked bell? Liberty, Liberty bell. bell. The Liberty Bell, would that is that would that fit in here somehow? Well, it's a, I mean, it's a picture representative of our, of our freedom, our independence from those ty- tyrants overseas or across those the island. Uh, civilizers. So Jules is comparing you know it to them? West. The British. Of- <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> uh, Prescott's head is in his hands when he goes to see Jules in the, um, in the prison cell. And that's when Jules says it was like um, the clanging bell would crack and be submerged. So he's actually using that metaphor to refer to Prescott himself. So would so would the Liberty Bell would that fit somehow? Prescott breaking. I don't. I don't cracking. see. It doesn't come. It doesn't fit I mean, immediately. It must no. somehow. If we think like we could, I gotta do a little bit of a, you know, research. Go back to my. Go back to some of the history on that. What are the bell? What other bell literature is there for whom the bell tolls? But that's for whom the bell tolls is taking the title from the Dunn poem. That's John Dunn, yeah. No man is an island. And Uh, then I looked at Browning's child Harold to the Dark Tower came. Wondered if it was something to do with Browning, but I couldn't really find anything. It just seems Poe doesn't seem like seem like somebody he would do though. Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. Yeah. I don't think And then I thought maybe Melville, is there a moment that a ship goes down and the bell Bell on the ship's deck is submerged. I don't, I don't recall anything from that. What about Billy Bud? No. What about in Billy Bud? No. I don't recall. I don't. But that doesn't mean it doesn't. Yeah. True. Yeah. But the connection between Prescott and the architecture is really interesting because is on three three seven. Um, there's the bit where you've got this sort of what we would in movies they would call the pathetic fallacy he died in peace and i believe that we should be in peace but the very sky looks darker to me in the boston streets where i walk today seem dreary and woebegone he would have scoffed at me and told me not to be a fool and god helping tomorrow i shan't be but today all is dust within me and i can write no more things have crumbled you know the architecture Mm -hmm. itself has crumbled and it's dust i mean so there's the to dust we shall return you know illusion there but also i think there is the illusion of the architecture itself is crumbling Mm. Um, and the streets are, you know, what, what finally, what finally was not seeming so dreary that, that sort of Boston architecture this sort of archetypal Boston architecture has now become dreary again, a Wobegon mm-hmm. and it's in December, you know, yeah, it's like the scene in Casablanca where it's raining when they're leaving, you know, of course it's raining when they're depart, when they're, when Ilsa and Rick are, are have you ever seen Casablanca, Matt? Yeah. Okay. Once with your dad. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't watch movies before like 1970s. So that might be even early. Um, <laughs> I watched Holiday Inn this weekend. I'll just have oh, you know. Well, that's his progress. Um, <laughs> it's Fred Astaire. Yeah. Bing Crosby, young-ish. <laughs> um, anyway. It's a good movie. I liked it. But, so so the, again, going back to the architecture. Um, I, I made a note. This is where I, oh, sorry. No, well, I was just going to say, there's also, you mentioned the arch because one of the big things that he keeps telling Brian keeps telling or, or reflecting on about Prescott is that Prescott is a bridge. Mm. And so I think that brings back this on 340. Um, yeah. 
the Francis Prescott, who was Charlie Strong's boyhood hero, certainly existed and existed more vividly to my thinking than the Francis Prescott who failed to sympathize with Jules Griscom. By the way, I think it's interesting that he calls him Francis in the final chapter. I'm not Frank anymore. I say more vividly because Charlie Strong's vision of God coincided, at least at moments, with Dr. Prescott's own. And it was this kind of bridge, this kind of communication of the ideal that seems to me the only part of Justin of the Justin story worth memorializing. And then below, it's where he, he writes, I believe that Dr. Prescott's true greatness lay less in his school than in his impact on individual boys. And so it's that he is the bridge that allows that impact. You know, be, He has that impact because he is the bridge, I think. And so that goes back to the concept of an arch. An arch isn't, strictly speaking, a bridge, but there's a, right. a bridgeness <laughs> to an arch. And in certain places, you know. Well, and etymologically, back to the Greek, right? There's the arc, like an archetype or the monarch. It's like mm. that kind of first principle, that begetting principle. I mean, in the Godhead, mm. they talk about the monarchy of the father begetting the son and the spirit proceeding from him. There's that sense of he's kind of that begetting, he's the arc or the begetting principle for all of what comes out from, you know, Justin Martyr and then through all the students and everything too yes. in the community there. And also in the architecture of Gothic chapels, the spires, the towers point to the heavens and take your eye up to the mm. divine. So again, it, it is a kind of physical bridge, if you like, between... Mm. Well, okay. So that's really interesting because then on 341, it says he, he saw at all times and with perfect clarity that his own peculiar genius was for persuading his fellow men that life could be exciting and that God wanted them to find it so. And having once seen and understood the good that he was thus destined to accomplish, how could he ever stop? How could he ever, even in moments of doubt, switch off his genius and leave his audience before a darkened stage? So we've got the architecture mm. and the stage motifs coming in at the same here, right at the end of the book. And then the next paragraph goes back to the architecture. Justin Martyr remains to us, as does the legend of Francis Prescott. And then we get the re- reversal here of the 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 way the architecture begins to look. In this early spring, the awakening elms, awakening is an interesting word there, seem more glorious than ever, and the brown, craggy chapel tower more massive against a white sky streaked with blue. So it's like the chapel itself is reaching even higher. You know, it's Mm. stretching out towards Mm. the sky. And then we shift to the the portrait, the renewed portrait of Prescott. Mm. Um, so he's again, yeah, associated with that tower and the new portrait is bigger and better than the old one. So it says somewhere else in the novel, that one of the things that's so astonishing and strange about Prescott is that he doesn't fade with time. <laughs> and that seems true at the end here. Mm. Okay. Okay. I, I, okay. I made a note at the bottom of three, three, seven, cause there's lots of white space. So I made a big long note for myself. <laughs> Because I've, I still, as I've been reading this, I'm still thinking about the analogy that you guys brought up a couple weeks ago about the search for understanding Frank is analogous to a man's search for understanding God or how to, how can we know God? So I think of, you know, these characters as being representative of the types of journeys people have with respect to, to God, trying to understand him, know him figure him out or reject him or deny him or whatever. Um, and so then I wondered at the bottom of this passage, if, if Frank is a picture, an, an analog to God, and if all of these people, Griscom, Brian, us, them, you know, all these different characters are analogs to us and, and it's the human pursuit of God. Is this, this moment with, with Griscom 
an, an analog to the Enlightenment? Like, did he de divinize Frank in this mm. moment? And is God now dead? And then, and then, of course, like we know that that at least at least Brian thought that 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 did kill Frank. Like he because suddenly became older, and he's closer to death now as a result of that. You know, final moments with I mean that last scene there with Griscom. So, in a sense, is there did Griscom kill Frank in the way that you know the Enlightenment thinks to have sought, to have killed God? Mm, that's um, a fascinating analogy. But then, but then. And if it ends there, right, then it's pretty hopeless. But then it doesn't, right? Then Brian comes along and writes this last entry in his journal. And and David, I think it's, I think that's a, I don't know, I, I totally missed it, but I think that's a huge catch there that he goes from saying, the very skies look darker to me and the Boston streets where I walk today seemed dreary and woebegone, which is exactly what the world would look like if God has just died in your mind in your eyes, right? Mm. If the enlightenment has just taken God away from you. But then he, but then, but then he ends by saying in this early spring, the awakening elm tree elms seem more glorious than ever. And the Brown craggy chapel tower, more massive against a white sky streaked with blue. And like God is renewed in him for him somehow. Like his, that's right. And understand. It's beautiful. And actually in death, Prescott is a bonfire of glory. Does he what does he say that or what what do you mean bonfire of glory? Um it's on page 340 when they when we get the description of Frank Prescott's funeral. He goes out in this blaze oh, of yes. red and gold. Right. A bonfire of glory. Good. Oh, I love it. Thanks. Hmm. A bonfire in which they might want have wanted nothing more than to warm their fingers and forget their relief, but what ends up happening is a, a greater and more glorious Justin Martyr and legacy of Frank. It, I mean, it re this really has become, I mean, this final entry is clear. Brian wants to write hagiography, not biography. Mm. Well, but, and that goes right back to, I mean, I don't think Prescott was doing this on purpose, but the bonfire and the hagiography thing tie into not just the name of the school, Justin Martyr, but also the bit where Prescott's saying, um, um, 333, where he's talking about motives, he re he mm -hmm. refers yeah. to himself as someone who's being burned at the stake. Like, <laughs> what if I had been burning at the stake? So that goes back oh, to the bonfire, right. and then also the concept of martyrdom and saints being burned and hanging. Wait, is that how Justin Martyr died? Was he burned at the stake? Oh, I don't fed, know. Fed to the lions or something. Hmm, that's a good question. And it's appropriate also that in the metaphor, Brian is the inquisitor. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Please, I mean, let's see. Um, if he died by some other means, I'm going to be so disappointed at Auchincloss. <laughs> if <laughs> he was drawn death, and quartered. <laughs> yeah, if he was hung upside down and <laughs> flayed, that's just, come on. David's, of course, looking for us right now. So. Yeah, just someone talk about something. Okay, what, what are we going to talk about? about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we could look at the demise of jewels. Um, that last uh, or the first chapter of this reading, the yeah, 19th. at some point, that I thought there were some interesting moments in there, and that maybe we get to know Prescott really well through his sort of nemesis. Looks like he was beheaded. Ah, uh -huh. so <laughs> maybe it would have been a little on the nose though. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the demise of Jules, and we get to know Prescott. 
Yes, it's when they're in Jules is in prison and yeah. he says Nin- to, nineteen, right? Yeah. Our demons have recognized each other, or something mm-hmm. like that. And Frank's caught by that, right? Wait, he's mm. wait, tell me more, tell me what you mean by that. Sorry, I'm just trying to find the page. Two eight one. That's two, two, two eight zero at the bottom of two eight zero is where he says my entire devils have recognized each other. Yeah. Yeah. Where. Oh, are you looking for a different page? Sorry. No, that's exactly right. That's what I was, I was thinking that there's a kind of, it's almost like they, they lock horns at this point and it's a battle between good and evil. But of course, Jules doesn't see it that way because Jules doesn't seem to believe in there being any, any good. Um, but he sees both himself and Prescott as possessed by something. And he'd earlier called Prescott a a cardboard dragon, but now he seems to acknowledge that that's not true, that there's more to Prescott than that. And yet there's that line, if Satan was not a headmaster, he was at least a parent. (laughs) Yeah. Your Laocoon act. That's the guy, that's the Trojan priest, right? Who is bit by the, bitten by the snakes. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and two so snakes involved again there. Snake charmer, the bottom of that paragraph. But it's you know dragon. It's really interesting here because this to me is the moment where we get the most direct correlation between Prescott and and God. Yeah. Um, because there's this whole bit where where he cries. Um, and I it felt like the most direct correlation between, but in this case, Jesus. You, you know, he says he. He makes a big deal about. It. He says he wept. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Jesus wept. He wept, and they make a. He makes a big deal about that phrasing, and he, he says it multiple times. He wept. Ah, oh, yes, he wept at last. But what was what was there left for me in the world of water? Um, and so the book itself is drawing a pretty clear correlation, I think, between God or Jesus and Prescott here, but in a way that's not someone saying he's like God. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sort of oh right because even here the. The interpretation of the tears isn't he's not interpreting it the way we would we would interpret Jesus' tears. He's interpreting it as his defeat. Yes, he's, he's weeping for his defeat, mm-hmm. not he's weeping because this soul was lost, which is his defeat, I guess, but but more like I beat you, not that's you Jules lost take, me. Yeah. yeah, from Jules' take. Mm-hmm. I think Prescott does learn something from Jules, though. Jules shatters the great glass window of his idolatry. And it is, perhaps that's why Prescott insists that Jules is included in his biography, because it, Jules has present, prevented Prescott from becoming too enamored with his own greatness or success. That he, it reminds him that he's not God. It, it was his father's window. Yes. His father but, gave that window to the school, right? So he, this, is a, this is a twofer. This is two birds and one stone. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I actually was she just was speaking metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you mention it, yeah, there was the actual smashing of glass. <laughs> who, who is on the window? Uh, who is the st- picture? Justin the Martyr. Place? Justin Martyr. That's right. Yeah. So that gets smashed. Phillips Brooks's portrait doesn't get sabotaged in the way that Jules had planned it. Right. Um. But Prescott's own does, and then a better one is painted. So, yeah, there's a, there's an interesting clash here. That but... well, that's really interesting in and of itself. That that the 
a better one. His portrait gets destroyed by through Jules, and then after you know, ultimately Jules dies. But then a new, better portrait is painted, and nothing's ever said about the um, the song again. Nobody cares about the song apparently. <laughs> it seems like it wasn't very popular. Wasn't that one of the letters early in the? Um... <laughs> In, in Brian's job as the clerk doing all the correspondence, someone said, I didn't feel like a real man till I ripped up the prayer book. <laughs> do you think that, right. how much do you think is Jules, Jules is right? Because even, even in Jules' accusations in this on 281, in the accusations of Prescott, he says, you built the school as an amphitheater. An amphitheater where through the decades, generations of wondering boys could watch your Laocoon act, which goes back to the thing you were saying. But the, that's a very different kind of architecture than the other kinds of architecture that are being associated with uh, with Prescott analogously or not. Because right, the amphitheater amp- uh, <laughs> the amphitheater amplifies Frank. Yeah. Whereas the, the, the theatricality of Frank. Yeah. We right. Excellent. Good point. Yeah. Whereas the Gothic architecture points away from Frank and up toward the transcendent right toward god mm. himself mm. yeah he he sees the school as a sort of like modern mega church for frank mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to be a some kind of like celebrity almost that's how yeah. jules reads it what frank is doing there and somehow frank was never able to persuade jules and it seems certain of the other graduates that it wasn't about his celebrity, that it was about reaching for something higher. The irony is that if anybody was trying to make Justin Martyr into an amphitheater, it was Jules' father. Jules' father was trying to create the legend of Frank Prescott. But maybe that's the problem. Maybe for Jules, of all people, he comes into the school already having heard about the legend of Frank Prescott. And so the legend that, that Dave Griscom creates becomes something his son cannot separate from the real person. So he can never have an individual relationship with Frank Prescott the way that Prescott can with someone like Charlie because for Jules, the the legend is too powerful. And so the legend itself that Griscom mm-hmm. tries to create is what keeps, you know, keeps Frank from reaching him, from ultimately fulfilling his goals and reaching his ideals and things like that. The legend gets <laughs> him away. How much of that is because he got there two years late? Hmm. <laughs> If he arrives two when he's two years younger, is he is he yeah, sinus problem more amenable to more susceptible? Yeah, yeah. Jules, um, Jules is Claudius in this chapter, isn't he? From Hamlet, and and he's also Macbeth, so he's cast here as a couple of Shakespeare villains. Hmm. He's quite masterful. Where the way in and so Jules is is presented as a character I think who's totally consumed by vengeance. Yeah, there's a, I mean possession is something that's talked about a lot. Mm. Laertes, he says, mm-hmm. "Your brother dear to you." <laughs> I loved that moment. Jules's theatricality, overt theatricality there, um, and so Jules is so. Ah, frustrated and just gutted when his machinations do not work. When he isn't, he isn't able to um, manipulate Bert in the way that he'd hoped. And then there's that other 
wonderful metaphor. Macbeth was no more frustrated by the escape of Fleance than I by this grisly chance that had turned the beautifully conceived eagle of my revenge into a croaking blackbird. And Frank has kind of a an equal, I mean, dismay there, equally dismayed, where the only way he can conceive of explaining of this failure is by demonic possession. Mm. Like it can't be a failure in him or the school yeah. or the culture, the community, the lessons, the readings, the football, <laughs> the decisions he made. It has to be demonic possession. Otherwise, Jules surely would have remorse by now. Mm. Or he would well, have seen light somehow. Yeah. The interesting thing about Jules is the way that for all his possession, or maybe because of his possession, he recognizes the deep significance of so much that's at the school. Like when he's telling Bert, mm-hmm. um, he um, he says, Bert says, how would you perform this this desecration? And then really interesting line from Jules where he says, oh, that's the crux. Mm. Um, and then he says, you have to do, he says, he gives him the list of things you have to do. And then a hole must be poked through the figure of Justin Martyr in the altar window in the chapel. And then Bert says, oh no, what do the saints have to do with this? Yeah. <laughs> um, can't we leave the chapel out of it? And, and, and and Jules recognizes that that's it, the whole thing turns on the saints. It all turns. Mm. It's the crux. Literally, the cro- The whole thing turns uh. on the chapel. It turns on the chapel that reaches to the sky. Right? He says. It says. I shook my head very firmly. There is a mystif- mystical significance in these three things. Any one or two is useless. All three must be perpetrated. The chapel that his father built on yeah. lies. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to how attentively Jules noted the objects on Prescott's desk that they have Mm -hmm. a a significance, but of course, Jules sees it as a superstition. He doesn't see it as any kind of true faith. He thinks it's some big, but he he calls them props in a vaudeville. Yeah. Mm. But then right before that, I think it's like the page before that superstition comes up again because Prescott says, we used to talk about people as being possessed, but on our day we've gotten rid of that as superstition. And what if we were very wrong to do that? Mm-hmm. What if what if we failed people by by throwing it out as superstition? So so they both have these. They're both using this concept of superstition in like the opposite way. Yeah, like from a you know com- like in right. a way that means completely different things. Right. Yeah. Whereas net one is very negative, and the other then it's very. I mean, it's he's almost kind of re- trying to redeem it or. Talking about it in a redemptive way. Well, one's like in a in a there's an eternal consequence to the concept, right? We've we've regi- we've taken this thing we've called it superstition, and in calling it superstition, we were able to make li- make little of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it's of eternal significance. And for Jules, you know, it's superstition in the sense that it's a prop for just getting some lesson across. Yeah, you know, it's like a way. It's like a lesson plan. Yeah. But it, but but for Prescott, it's not a lesson plan. It's not superstition. It's the whole thing. It's the whole relationship. It's not about the lesson, just as, and this is why the way that he does Socratic, it just, just occurred to me, the way he does his Socratic lessons, mm-hmm. when he doesn't have these discussions with everybody, it's actually Socratic, right? He's having one-on-one discussions with right. a student, and then he'll move on to the next student when the next student asks the question. Yeah, It's like actual Socrates, yeah. right? Because it's about the one-on-one relationship. That That's how the whole thing is is built on that. The whole, the whole pedagogy the way you reach the kids you know yeah. and that's what brian recognizes and that's what he has to remind him of at the end yeah exactly yeah. and yeah, i and i wonder good. i wonder if the years that he spent in i mean this is conjecture but i wonder if 
the years he spends administering the school and being the sort of legendary figure and fundraising and all those things that Dave Griscom gets him to do, mm-hmm. the building the legend of the school, the legend of the figure himself has taken him out of the classroom and caused him to forget that it's those conversations, the one-on-one conversations where you dialogue with a kid, you challenge him, you let mm. him push back. Mm. That kind of thing is what the whole mission was built upon. And that when he, was, when he started thinking about the legend and the fundraising and all that, that goes away. And that's when Jules comes in, the product of his father, you know, believing in this legend already, and he can't, and then therefore they cannot connect. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's true. I think we see even, um, even after Prescott's retirement, he still, when he disciplines the boy in, in Brian's schoolroom for being, for being rude, Sloan, a dreadful, tall, thin, slick New Yorker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he again even his but i repeat myself <laughs> his discipline is, is kind of socratic even he says um, oh yeah yeah that's right has a conversation with him, <laughs> yeah. him no no uh, and slipped out are, are you merely sorry did you he kind of he tries to get the boy to realize exactly what it is that he's done wrong yeah he, he identifies you know he tries to get him to admit it to realize it before he points it out to him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever tried teaching that poem Meeting at Night by Browning? No. Don't. <laughs> advise you not to. <laughs> Especially not to a class of teenage boys, as Brian is attempting to hear. I've been in this situation. <laughs> not an easy one. You need Prescott at the back of the schoolroom. <laughs> so, hey, okay, let me... So Brian's got a stereotypical class of teenage boys? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me... Before we go for, for this week... We're we're you know well into our time here, but I, I want to um, ask you about that actually, um, not about that specific experience of teaching that that poem to a classroom of boys, but whether <laughs> whether some of the experiences that show up here, or what anything else in this book for that matter, has um, taken on any different significance because you're teaching in a similar situation to Brian um, and Matt. I will ask. I want to hear from you on this too, but. I'm asking Sarah Jane first because she teaches in a all boys boarding school. So I'm wondering, I guess, if any of this, if you've, if you've reflected on anything that you've experienced or if it's brought anything to light or if you think about things differently because of your specific circumstances as a teacher. Now, and I realize it's maybe a little bit different being a woman teaching in an all boys school, which mm. I'm sure would never have been okay with Frank Prescott. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I'm just, I'm just curious about, about that, you know, I said at the beginning that it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and I, I was kind of joking, but also I am kind of curious, um, you know, uh, about that, your, that, that point of view in encountering this book. I think there's a perspicacity to Alkin Kloss's observations of how school politics and school hierarchies work. So certainly things like the conflicts between the headmaster's principles and the dependence upon big donors to make things happen. So something like the meeting with the trustees in in this part of the novel, I found uh, had a lot of verisimilitude. Um, I I also thought that um, the kind of growth of of Brian as a young teacher from a position of of weakness and uncertainty to, to assuming the authority of the position of teacher was quite convincing. 
Um, yeah, I think I actually, my favourite bits of the book were the bits set in the school. I thought the, the part with the boys cheating with the trot was something that <laughs> <laughs> seemed to ring true in some ways. Um, Is that a word that y'all, you guys use? I've never encountered trot? that word before. But this I've never book. heard that word before, no. So I'm not even exactly I mean, sure what it is. A trot, but you've heard of a horse trotting. It's like a way yeah, of but I'm pretty sure they had to bring a horse That's trot how I into get the to classroom. <laughs> you, you trot or you ride a horse? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm trying to play up how archaic it is here. <laughs> but you know, well, I said before. Uh, you do, do ride a cycle with your robes flying behind I do, you. Yeah, I've I do heard. bicycle to work, yeah. My mom told me about the time she first met you. <laughs> she said you rode up on a bicycle with your robes flying behind you like something out of a Harry Potter story or something, which just, you know, reveals the Americanness of our education system. But and the ridiculous theatricality of ours. <laughs> yeah, we dress but, like yeah. essentially like Victorian butlers. That's how we dress <laughs> for school. <laughs> and we do wear capes at eleven twenty every day. It is maybe time to move on, but we haven't. <laughs> there is something to a teacher dressing looking like being recognizable as a teacher though. Whereas you hear you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a teacher and a mm. banker. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And then, yeah, anyways, except I would never dress like a banker. I would just wear a sweatshirt. <laughs> just kidding, Matt. What about you? Well, all my experience in boys' schools. Well, teaching, perhaps. in teaching, but or unless you've had experience in boys' schools that I don't know about. No, I have no experience in boys' schools. Although I once watched a movie about a boys' school. <laughs> Um, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> That's a very narrow joke. You just, I don't know. <laughs> but I, you got it? Did you get it? I get it. Pass me yeah. by. There used to be a series of commercials for, there's a Holiday Inn Express uh, hotel chain here in the States. And there's a, they used to have a commercial where somebody would walk up on the scene, walk up on a scene where somebody needed medical attention and he would start providing the medical attention. Then somebody else would ask, are you a doctor? And he would say, no, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And then all these bizarre different scenes, right? Where where somebody felt like they were qualified to do something simply because they had a really good night's sleep at the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> last night. Right, okay. So, sorry. Um, that took way too much time. <laughs> sorry. There, it's pure, pure <laughs> nonsense. It was not worth making the joke. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't... I mean, I don't know. No, I don't know because I don't have any experience at teaching at a, an all-boys school or even a school for that matter. Like most of my teaching has been in you know, homeschool co-ops and groups like that. So when I've taught in schools, it's always been temporarily for, you know, filling in for somebody for a few days or maybe for a year while they were on maternity leave. Like that, I mean, I've never done that, but I'm willing, Um, especially if it's in England and I get to wear a cape and ride a bicycle. The, uh, you can do that here, but. Yeah, but I would look really funny if I rode a bicycle to <laughs> school and rode a cape or a cape. Anyway, um, but there is something there is something very real about about the struggles that you would have, right? Like that, like that very, very um, conversation, that very, that very scripted, uh, carefully selected conversation in Griscom's uh, apartment or whatever that night before the speech. And they're all talking about, you know, which students to accept and which students not to accept. And do we accept them based on, you know, their parent, the role their parents have played in, their family has played in the school. And then, but then those people only have the friendship with the school they have because they have lots of money. Like that's all real stuff that 
people experience in community or in, whether it's at a church or in a school or in a co-op or in a, uh, uh, whatever, even in educational organizations like the Cersei Institute, right? Like it's this sort of thing that comes up that very real things that we have to, to think about and, um, and how our relationships are affected by the social status, the econo- economic status of other people and, is there favoritism that's coming in and um, because, because of somebody's wealth or because of their family connections or because of their last name or because they're good looking like I am. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to laugh so quite. (laughs) Yeah, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Jane. I mean, it's more true when it just comes out. You couldn't help it. You stayed at the Holiday Express last night. So I looked up a trot online. There's a few things that might apply. Obviously. So there's not a ready definition when it comes to cheating. But it might just be that it's slang related from the concept of a trot, meaning you run yeah. fast. In other words, it's something that helps you work faster. Cut the corners. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But there, a trot is apparently a term for a literal translation of something. Oh, so okay. it might be, but there's no, I can't, it just says that I just see something here that says that. Yeah. And um, those kinds of things, although they seem minor on the surface in the, in the novel, it, it's a really big deal in a school like this one, for example, especially when the headmaster is saying, we need to expel people for this. And you've got governors and parents saying, no, that's, that's an extreme reaction. Those kinds of tensions over little things can, you know, run really deep. Um, and some of the other things that struck me as, as quite um, pertinent from the novel were... Uh, as you said, the admissions discussions, that's a really big deal for schools like this one. How do you get a fair admissions policy and who's who's let in and how is it decided? Especially things like um, members of a family who have had other sons, fathers, grandfathers at the school. And, and Prescott makes a very good case that, you know, we should let people in just because they're friends of the school. Um yeah, even if the, they can't give a lot of money. Exactly. And you get the other side of the argument, which is, well, the only reason they're friends is because somebody gave a lot of money. So it's really exclusive either way. Um, I was reminded of that scene when he's talking about motives with, with Brian, because he's, you know, mm. because he's talking about how sometimes you just have to do the right thing. Sometimes you'll learn, <laughs> you, you know, it will change you by doing the right thing because you did the right thing. Um, and it seems like he's saying something similar here. Like as a school, sometimes we need to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, no matter what other people are going to think about it, no matter what mm. it's going to mean financially. Um, we can't worry about all that. We just have to do what the right thing is. And he's, you know, everyone else is kind of doing the opposite, right? They're worrying about why they're doing the right thing. Like they're talking about, they're even using awful ways of talking about people, like awful uh, derogatory racist terms for African-Americans, mm. for, yeah. um, you know, and he points that out to them. He says, you know, you're calling these people these things and they're just quotients to you, right? You want to let them in because they can fulfill some kind of progressive agenda. But mm. why can't we just let people in? And, and how is that any different than just letting someone in because of their money? And, mm. we're, and, and even there, it's, it's another place where he's looking at people as individuals and other people are, and everyone else is looking mm. at people as statistics. Mm. which is the hardest one of the hardest things that's like the whole problem with assessment in america at least right that we that we judge the value of our education by looking at large quantities of people like as groups of people and statistics because and we're and therefore we're not worrying about the the impact on individual people you know Mm. you look at people as or even like you look at the quality of a school by the quality of the test scores you know did Mm. do a certain percentage of our people score a certain way 
you know, that's kind of, it's the same sort of concept, you know, it's so far afield from what Prescott is the ideal that he's trying to pursue and that he was bridging. Yeah. And he even says at one point, doesn't he, if Dave Grescom had his way, they then all the graduates of Justin Martha would be just like him. They'd all be like Prescott. Whereas, mm-hmm. sorry, not, but they'd all no, be, like they'd be like Dave Grissom, yeah. That he wants to make little clones of himself. Little Davids. Well, yeah. that, you know, that, Gentile, that, but they're all little Davids in the end. <laughs> that's why I think it's so important that the children of Grissom become such a factor in the book because both of his boys and his daughter, none of them turn out as little Davids. No. Right? Oh, they right. all are their own individual people. They all cause him problems and, and heartbreak and he's having to solve their problems and they're, you know, getting in the way of his his goals and you know so mm. even his own children mm. let alone the children he lets into the school although the children he lets into the school might have a better chance to be little david's then maybe that's his chance to re to do what he couldn't do as a parent that's what it seems like that he, he seems to neglect his family in favor of uh being some kind of patriarch at justin martyr instead it's interesting too then that what's presented as frank's greatest failures <laughs> is actually Griscom's greatest yeah. failure. Like, yeah. did Frank ever have a chance with those kids? Well, his own children are a problem too, though. His daughters. That's true. Interestingly, their daughters. Yeah, that's true. Oh, I wonder how similar and dissimilar Frank and David actually are. Well, I mean, it's a, it's interesting to compare Jules and Cordelia. Yeah. Mm. Also, yeah. the name Jules is very interesting. Go on. Just interesting. What? In what you way? You could name your daughter... <laughs> Jules, <laughs> Sarah J. Well, I mean, there's the obvious, like the concept of a jewel. Yeah. yeah. You're trying to use something that you show off that is very precious to you. And, right. And he becomes sort of in every way, not that. And, and, mm. you know, to, it's like, it's like he assigns this name to this child. That's, and it's this, as if he's going to say, you are going to be my beloved son who's going, who I'm going to show off. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, right. that's a lot yeah. of pressure, you know, also but, like we talked about last week and, and you're going to redeem your grandfather's name. Mm, oh yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. You're going to be the jewel of the family. Um, yeah. 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 Hmm. But he's actually, he's the black sheep. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that struck me as quite true about the novel's depiction of, of, big, huge institutions, schools like this, um, probably businesses as well, is that you have the old guard who are conservative and who um, kind of get together over whiskey and talk about the good old days. And, you know, isn't it terrible that Latin's not compulsory anymore? (laughs) All that kind of stuff. And I thought Pierre was quite a convincing character in that sense. That they, But the thing that I found unrealistic is that they actually try to stage a little revolutionary coup. I mean... The old guard conservatives never do that. They just complain <laughs> about what all the new progressives are doing. And somewhere <laughs> in the tension between these two different factions, there's a kind of a middle way is reached. I think that's generally how schools work. Maybe big businesses too. I'm not sure. What if you had Frank Prescott there though as part of the coup? I mean, as part of the group complaining. Is, <laughs> is he the one that enables the coup? Or, or do you think even in a real life situation, they still wouldn't try the coup? Well, I think even Brian says it in the novel, doesn't he? He says something like, I'd never thought of... Prescott had never struck me before as a revolutionary, but now he might have been a wily old Danton. Hmm. Um, But the truth is, he doesn't revolt, does he, Prescott? Mm -hmm. He, in the end, he sort of 
is charming and doesn't doesn't create any problems. That there was my big surprise actually when when Brian pulls up in the car with Griscom. And Prescott's leading the students. Prescott's leading the former students, right? And he says, I thought this was going to be a moment where Prescott would turn on Griscom and get this group to turn on Griscom. I thought they would he was going to do that too. Like I was I was with Brian. I was like, oh yeah, that's totally believable. I could see it happening. And then it didn't. So does the way I don't know why, but is is Prescott's response to all this and then ultimately the way he gives the speech that he gives. He, you know, he pushes back a lot on the trustees in the while they're drinking in their little party mm-hmm. gathering, mm-hmm. whatever. But then the next day when he gets up, he says basically, cheers, you know, like this thank you, essentially. He says nothing. And it's countered everything they thought he was gonna do. Does he do the right thing? Like, is that is that the honorable right thing for him to have done in that situation? Or should he have should he have lit, you know, lit into them? Should he have given the speech that he always wanted to give? It's the only strategic thing he can do. He realizes that, that in the game of chess with Griscom, he's been shown that Duncan Moore is the least bad leader that the school can have. And that if he were to turn the tables at the party, potentially Justin Martyr would end up with a far less idealistic and a much more business-minded headmaster. Did he do here what he should have done with Jules and his friends? Mm. Like mm. it's like he softens the response, right? In a way that he refused to do with Jules and his friend, and it led to destruction. Mm. But so here it leads to life. He's learned a kind of diplomacy. Mm. Interestingly, Griscom being the diplomat. I love the bit where he's described <laughs> as, as a Medici prince. I thought that was so appropriate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Prescott calls him that. Yeah. yeah. So clever. <laughs> the Medici's uh, motto, it's, I think, was for God and profit. Is <laughs> so harsh in a way that's like <laughs> just so gently, condescendingly harsh. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I read it, I thought he had just said earlier to Brian that princes don't give gifts. And then I think he found a prince who who, <laughs> who does it in a very selfish way, the way he's perceiving Griscom to have done, right? Well, it's very sarcastic because the Medici, I, they weren't really of noble birth at all. They were mm-hmm. bankers. And, um, well, you probably know yeah, all about them. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. But the reason they got so rich is that they were saying, hang on a minute, why is it only the Jewish inhabitants of Florence who are able to trade money? Um, we're missing a trick here. And so they kind of overturned the church's laws on money lending and said, well, actually, we're going to lend money to the glory of God. <laughs> and so they made huh. a huge profit and they sort of put the Jewish money lenders out of business. Um, and then with <sighs> their, their immense wealth came a kind of reputation that they were able in a way to buy and to build, which is exactly what Griscom's done. And it says somewhere um, about how Griscom's dependent on the, what is it, the consolation of the the constant constellation of marble pillars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that he's built this world and this reputation for himself on thick, heavy minted coin. <laughs> Aren't American coins less thick than other ones? Yeah, I think so. Just you know. thinner than the euros I have at home. <laughs> Not um, that you Brits would use something like a euro. <laughs> <laughs> we managed just about managed to escape that, I think. 
knows? <laughs> a couple of decades ago. <laughs> um, well, we should probably wrap this up. Next week, we'll get into a lot when people ask uh, ask their questions. We tend to get pretty good ones, so I think we'll, yeah. be, think we'll dive into a lot. But Matt, do you have any any final thoughts on this book before we before we depart for this week? Um, I love it. I love this book. I love this book more than I remember loving it before. Hmm. Why? I don't know. I just think it's such an interesting... Well, what was different about it than last time you think? In what ways is it? Well, I don't know. Cause I remember, I, I can't really remember what my experience was at the first time. So I remember, I love it more than I did then, but it's because I don't remember love it. How, if I loved it or not. So it was more then. of an impression. of remember. Yeah. yeah. The, um, well, I, it's probably, it's probably because of that analogy of, of Frank as the, the, the journey and the discover the attempt to discover and find out who Frank really is for these people and for Brian in particular, and then for us as readers, the analogy of that to, to us, to modern man trying to find God. Mm. Um, and see what can we know about God in light of what's available to us? Right. I, I think that analogy made this book come to life, come to life for me. seems like that has to be, partly why we get the form that we do bringing it full circle because throughout the book, it, it's not just about who Frank is. It's about who Frank is to everyone else. Like what Frank means and how he, particularly Brian, how he changes Brian and alters him and presumably prepares Brian to then go on and be a minister and a better minister and a better teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if it had just been like the story in Prescott's head or purely about Prescott and it was just the narrative of Prescott's life, that's a different, it becomes a very different thing. Sarah Jane, what about you? Final thoughts? Did we lose you? Sorry. I, th- I think it would have been a brilliant novel if Alkengloss had just not put any of the women in it. <laughs> Interesting. Do you think he was trying to meet his quota? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I don't think he can write women, but he's very good on boys' public schools. I'll give him that. <laughs> I have one Catholic. I have one, <laughs> one, <Yeah>. one woman. <laughs> In Although, the last bit of the novel, the, the women were either... So Griscom's wife is some kind of religious nutcase uh, who dresses like a Louis Fifteenth pompadour. Mm-hmm. And we've got tarts in Harvard, some nurses with thermometers around the school. I just left me cold. I, I thought mean, he, he just can't write women, I thought... I wonder if his other books have the same flaw. There's his man he, is great though. Prescott's yeah. hero. He has a book that's the title of the book is is a woman. I think the book is following. Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. I think that was his most famous lady something or late. Yeah, hmm. I could Wikipedia this, but we're kind of yeah, out of time, so you know fine. people can do that themselves. Somebody, All right, somebody ask it on the Q and A, and we'll. we'll yeah. yeah. Doris Drinker and Estelle for me, were kind of the nail in the coffin of the female characters in this novel. Oh, and Faith as well. Sylvester's string of women. Hmm. That's Sylvester's fault, though. You can't blame Malcolm Claus for that. <laughs> they did bad taste. <laughs> and, and we're only getting, we're only getting Sylvester's explanation of them, right? What he, how he viewed them. He's yeah. characterizing her character. Yeah, that's them. true. We did talk about that before, that maybe Alkin Gloss is revealing a kind of flaw in that high society. Or at least these particular dudes. And they're, uh, yeah. you know... Or, or that particular family, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Inability to see, you know, people as human beings 
because Harriet was great. She was okay. Aw. <laughs> okay, let's, okay. Do, let's debate Harriet next week then. <laughs> uh, she dressed in brown. She was plain. Nah. We'll bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> she was a Parisian, a lover of uh, Francophile. She's amazing. Well, okay, fight about it next week. Save it. Um, <laughs> maybe, well, no, we'll see. Yeah, we'll save it for next week. And I just said save it and then I was going to jump in. Or something. She, she gets it's, hard, you, it's hard to keep up <laughs> <laughs> that level of intensity when you're writing about women as a man. You gotta, it's that difficult for us. <laughs> That's why I said he should have just left them out. <laughs> Not kill them out. <laughs> no, I, honestly, though, I kind of want to talk about this. Like, could, could, what's the book without the women? That's actually probably something worth talking about next time. A Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> yeah, we get what you think. Now you got to defend yourself next week. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, thanks to both of you for joining me. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, remember, um, you can help us out by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads and support us uh, that way. And again, questions, email us at close reads podcast at gmail.com or post them on the thread on the Facebook group i guess that's it right anything else we need to say questions next week um this has been really fun sarah jane thanks for uh for joining us here on close reads and we'll have to have you back on matt thanks for you know jumping over and talking about this book which you love anyway i guess it really wasn't hard to convince you so Mm -hmm. (laughs) sarah jane you come back well i'll come and do the questions hopefully next week so then after that you're done with us (laughs) baby the baby unless we do another book about a boy's public school uh, yeah, I, maybe that's it maybe that's the end I guess or or a, a brand new mother we could do a book about a brand new mother or maybe they we can see it. if yeah. she can talk about books that she do- that are not exactly like her life experiences I bet your listeners we might have, have to do Dr. Seuss after this to get Sarah Jane in okay <laughs> <laughs> I need to be taught yeah I need to be educated in the role of new motherhood definitely <laughs> we should make a list of books for you to read while you're you know at home with a newborn um, although I, I imagine for some reason, I imagine that your list of books to read is not short already. So you're probably pretty, pretty well set up there. It's about four foot high. <laughs> That's not, t- not tall enough. Um, all right. Well, thanks to you both, uh, for Sarah Jane and for Matt, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, happy reading. Happy reading.